Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm your co-host Shobana Xavier, and I hope you are staying well and safe wherever you are. And thank you so much for joining us today. In today's episode, we are joined by Yasmin Zine, who is a professor of sociology, religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada to discuss her new book, Under Siege, Islamophobia and the 9-11 Generation, which is published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2022. The book explores experiences of Canadian Muslim youth um, as they navigate the landscape of Islamophobia, anti-Muslim racism, and global war and terror. By centering the voices of Muslim youth in Canada, particularly those who are part of the 9-11 generation, the study captures the complex nexus of oppressions experienced by Black and racialized Muslims, um, particularly women, as they navigate government policies of securitization, security industry complex, university Muslim culture, news media, and popular culture. Zina also examines how Muslim storytellers are creating counterpublics intentionally through cultural production, such as artistic and creative works, and in doing so, unsettled reductive portrayals of Muslims in Canada. This book will be of interest to those who think and write about Islamophobia, Muslim youth, and Islam in Canada, but I think also importantly it will be of interest to a general public audience, um, particularly those who work perhaps in civic and public sectors such as educators. In our conversation today, Dr. Zine and I spoke about the process of how how this book came to be, some of the methodological challenges, both difficulties and joys, and some of the broader um, arguments of the book, such as distinguishing Islamophobia from anti-Muslim racism, um, the idea of 9-11 generation, um, Muslim student organizations on campuses, and the particularity of these experiences in the Canadian context. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Yasmin Zine about her new book, Under Siege, Islamophobia and the 9-11 Generation. Hi, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your new book, Under Siege, Islamophobia and the 9-11 Generation. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me about the book and to have this conversation. Of course, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I'm excited to hear about the book. Um, we have a tradition on the podcast to start our conversation with a little bit of an autobiographical note. So I wonder if you could share a little bit about um, your intellectual journey and who you are and what brought you to being you know, professor of sociology and Muslim culture and um, particularly this book. Oh, well, thank you for that question. I mean, it's, it's interesting uh, if I'm going to go a little bit further back to talk about my intellectual journey, because getting to where I am now, you know, as a a professor and as a woman of color um, and someone who came to Canada as an immigrant was not a, um, 
you know, was not an ordinary journey. So in fact, even being in university for me is somewhere I'm not supposed to be because um, I was a high school dropout. And I still don't have a high school diploma. Um, I actually left school at um, 16 and, uh, you know, did other things and then worked my way back into um, uh, academics through a bridging program at the University of Toronto for mature students. And I actually started my academic career in um, archaeology. I was very interested in you know, sort of ancient cultures and societies. And then um, it wasn't quite the right fit for me uh, in archaeology. So I segued over into social cultural anthropology and uh, and sociology. And that was a better fit for me. And that um, sparked my interest in ethnography and uh, doing ethnographic research, uh, which I also did in this book. And I've done in a few other books um, as well. And so that kind of got my journey into um, looking at um, communities through an ethnographic lens. And by the time I got into my um, doctoral work, I was in a program that was very heavily um, uh, focused on anti-colonial um, pedagogies and uh, anti-racism. And so that's where my interest in um, examining um, society through that prism. And particularly, I began to look, well, first, uh, my research uh, with my former supervisor, we uh, co-authored a book together, looked at Black students and their disengagement from school. And from that experience, I started to look at Muslim students in the public school system, and then later in Islamic schools. And so that also began an interest at looking at Muslim youth and subcultures and um, how they are um, developing and the different responses that youth have to the kinds of um, situations that they're in when it comes to racism, Islamophobia. So uh, a lot of that came through my own experiences growing up racialized in a sort of all white community and, um, you know, really not being a dropout from school, but being a pushout from school because of the kinds of experiences that I was encountering myself that um, led to my own disengagement from school, from society and then having to work my way back in, you know, um, and using that experience and drawing on that experience to uh, make sense of, uh, of it in a more academic way and in a way that I think uh, I can draw on, you know, from the communities that I'm examining, but also have um, something uh, that I produce that they can see themselves and their experiences that are usually subaltern and marginalized and not uh, brought into focus, um, allow that space for their experiences to be captured and validated. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And it's always, I think, so helpful to hear about the journeys of authors and scholars, because I think so much of the, the personal is also what ends up in the books that we often don't you know, think about or know about. Um, how did this particular project, I mean, it seems like it emerged naturally from the work that you've been doing, but was there a particular moment where the idea for this book came up for you? Yeah, you know, it um, definitely is, as you say, you know, my scholarship has been a product of some of my own experiences and is referenced by that. And um, this book is is no exception uh, to that. And, you know, in the preface of the book, I talk about sort of three, I guess you could say catalytic moments that, um, you know, shaped my uh, uh, thoughts around wanting to explore this issue of the 9-11 generation. And 
The first was, you know, thinking back to my own experience, when I finally did get into university, I joined the Muslim Student Association. So we're talking about 30 years ago as an undergraduate. And um, I actually, up until then, was not really... Uh, you know, what you would say a practicing Muslim. I wasn't, uh, I grew up in more of a family that really wasn't very religious. And I guess I was seeking a kind of community on that campus. And so I, I joined the Muslim Student Association and it became very impactful to um, my development in terms of my own orientation to Islam and to faith, um, but also grounded a lot of like friendships that I have as well as activism started to grow. For me, um, you know, at, during my time as a um, student in the MSA, and I was remembering back in that day, back in, you know, uh, some 30 years ago that we used to do a lot of fundraising um, in our MSA, and uh, we were raising money for an organization called Human Concern International, which at the time was doing humanitarian work in um, Russian-occupied Afghanistan. And so um, they were they were providing aid for families and so on. And at the same time, you know, Canada was taking in Mujahideen fighters who were, you know, uh, um, being who were injured and they were coming to Canada um, for rehabilitation and so on. And so this was a, you know, a climate where there was a lot of attention on um, Afghanistan and on doing uh, charitable works to assist what was going on. Um, and so we were raising money for human Concern International through our MSA, we had this big bazaar where we got actually a Catholic school gymnasium and we booked it. And we had this event where we had different booths set up of, you know, like food and things for sale from, you know, countries like Somalia, Pakistan, India, Guyana. Yeah, so this big multicultural, you know, fair to raise money. And it was quite big. So we actually had to have some security kind of set up for, you know, the parking lot where people were coming and going. And so we actually had these Afghan Mujahideen fighters who were uh, living in this house near where I was staying at the time. And uh, I asked them to come, you know, could you just come and sort of be, you know, control the traffic, direct traffic and things like that. So they came, they had all of their sort of, um, you know, traditional clothing and like shalwar kameez and turbans and then walkie talkies because they were communicating with each other as they were walking around this, this Catholic school building, right, with all of these Muslims converging. And, you know, I, I wondered to myself, uh, what would that look like today? Right. You know, if we were, if, if a Muslim student group was to, you know, hold an event like that in a Catholic church with, you know, uh, you know, former foreign fighters walking around with walkie talkies, right? You'd have CSIS and the RCMP and everything, everybody converging on that site. And so it really made me think about, you know, um, the differences of our experience coming of age at a particular time where, I mean, I wouldn't say that there was no, Islamophobia didn't exist, it's always existed, but um, the 9-11 moment made it, uh, you know, um, brought it into relief in, in particular ways and placed it within a particular kind of register. Um, and so looking at that experience and then realizing actually years later, the organization that we were raising money for, Human Concern International, was later put on the terrorism list in Canada. So that added to, you know, the um, way that that 
whole experience and event would have been read completely differently um, now. Um, so that was one, you know, kind of reflection that I had comparing my experience to that of my sons who were growing up and they are part of the 9-11 generation and their experiences uh, watching them come of age during this very turbulent time and the experiences they had was something else that um, sort of focused me on this topic of the 9-11 generation. And so at the time, you know, that the 9-11 happened the day of when the Twin Towers fell and so on, I remember that, you know, my younger son was in an Islamic school, which was attached to a mosque. And even prior to 9-11, uh, mosques and Islamic schools would get bomb threats. If anything happened anywhere in the world <clears throat> and Muslims were believed responsible, immediately you would see these schools and mosques getting threats. Um, and so we were accustomed to that. And so before we even knew who was responsible, um, I remember, you know, we went to the school to pick up our kids in the middle of the day uh, out of fear that there would be some kind of a reprisal. And when we arrived at the school, uh, men in the neighborhood had, you know, gathered and had formed like a security perimeter linking arms all around the school and mosque. Um, and, you know, that was kind of the sign of the times uh, at that moment. And so we took my son out of school, my younger one, my older son was in middle school, uh, and his name is Osama. So he experienced a lot of bullying, harassment, you know, people putting death threats in his locker and that sort of thing. Um, as my kids were growing up, my younger son uh, was an actor. So by the time he was, I mean, 13, he was going for auditions, but very quickly he started to get typecast as terrorist number four. Mm. You know, so you started to see ways in which the experiences of um, children who were growing up under the specter of the war on terror, who were, you know, uh, were Muslim, had Muslim sounding names, all of these things, um, had to contend with circumstances that were very different than my own upbringing and experiences that I had or that my generation had. And so there was something very unique um, about this particular um, generation. Yeah. So that was the second factor. And then the third was at the time I was also teaching um, uh, you know, um, classes and uh, at UTM, as a matter of fact, University of Toronto, Mississauga campus. And I would take the bus there from where I was and one of the students in the class um, would wait for me at the bus and, and would have all these questions to ask me and you know we'd have all these conversations about you know Islam and politics and all of these things he was very very keen and he was very much a social justice activist you know on campus everybody knew him um, you know he started this Muslims for social justice group and but slowly he started asking me questions uh, about a group called the Hizbat Tahrir. And um, he started to tell me about their philosophy about having this, you know, return to a global caliphate system under which the Muslim communities could unite and so on. And um, I, I, I didn't know much about it, to be honest, at the time. You know, this is maybe some uh, 15, 17 years ago. And I started to look into this and um, I realized that, okay, this is a group that is nonviolent, but they do have an ideology that is, you know, they were sort of banned in the UK and that they have violent offshoots of uh, like Muhajirun, for example. Um, <clears throat> but I was, you know, really saw this as a kind of narrow 
um, ideological framework. And I found a lot of their tactics to really be concerning in terms of how they would be policing other Muslims and trying to create a particular, you know, uh, ideal type Muslim that they would impose this vision on others. And as they began to gain traction in MSAs, it was a very kind of religiously chauvinistic and narrow um, ideology. And I was so surprised that this one particular student who otherwise, you know, I felt had a lot of very progressive ideas was being attracted to this. And then I started to also see the way that some of these groups use Islamophobia as a rallying cry to attract young Muslims into the fold, um, you know, as another example of why we need to band together against uh, Western hegemony and create this, you know, <clears throat> um, caliphate system in order to combat that. And so um, that was the third sort of um, catalytic moment that got me thinking about this nexus between Islamophobia and reactionary Islamist groups. And that was the third thing that, um, you know, sort of um, motivated me to begin to bring these experiences into conversation and start to look uh, more systematically at the 9-11 generation, the group that sort of has come of age at this time of war and terror, and look at the different ways they were reacting and responding to those conditions. Mm -hmm. And I think um, those catalytic moments are really helpful in prefacing the work that you do and you do do in the book. Um, and so I wonder if you could say, I think you've hinted at it already, but if you were to say generally some of the main interventions of the book are in, in light of those catalytic moments, before we get into some of the, the details of the chapters, um, that might be helpful for the, the listeners as well. Sure. Uh, so it is a book about coming of age in times of, of global war and terror. And looking at how Muslim youth navigate, negotiate, and resist the challenges they faced after 9-11 when uh, overnight they became suspect citizens. So there was this sort of ontological shift that happened after 9-11, as well as the political conditions that were ushered in, also ushered in a kind of ontological shift where Muslims in general, but Muslim youth in particular, uh, were being looked at as potential radicals, jihadists, and threats to the nation. Um, Muslim identities were being <clears throat> um, policed and, and demonized and vilified. And so uh, this book looks at how uh, this particular generation of youth uh, were socialized within these conditions. And I went back to the question that was posed by W.E.B. Du Bois in the 1930s in his book, um, The Souls of Black Folk, when he asked, what does it feel like to be a problem? Mm -hmm. And I think that this book is attempting to unpack what it felt like for Muslim youth in the, you know, the 9-11 generation to be regarded as a problem and how they respond to that in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what it means to be all of a sudden interpolated into discourses of racial and religious degeneracy mm -hmm. and to be constructed as the new folk devil. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I draw on Stanley Cohen's um, definition of folk devils 
as this sort of uh, scapegoat, you know, the repository of social ills that is um, what the scapegoat becomes and how Muslims became that contemporary folk devil in that moment. Um, and out of which these sort of moral panics would um, uh, be associated with and continue to be associated with. And so it was very, um, you know, interesting for me and to see how uh, you become socialized into that as a young person when you already don't necessarily have a sense of who you are, how you um, want to be in the world, and you're still trying to figure out all of that. At the same time, you're really being bombarded with a lot of external messaging and labels that get attached to you and your body and your identity in ways that have really nothing to do with you and who you are. Um, but you still have to respond to that, contend uh, with that um, labeling and, um, you know, to examine what that meant for uh, that particular uh, generation who were really feeling the brunt of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned also before that um, this is really was an ethnographic study and a quite a large scale. You conducted a lot of interviews. Um, so I wonder if you could share a little bit about, um, you know, the reasoning for this particular methodological, um, I guess, process, um, how it was like. And I know ethnography and like any kind of methodological work that we do is always hard. So I wonder if there were like challenges or certain moments that really made you hopeful, despite the fact that it's a difficult topic to write about in terms of, you know, putting all of this together. Yeah, thank you for that question. I, I think sometimes people don't realize how much work goes into ethnography. There's many, many layers to do ethnographic work as compared to, you know, if I were to have just written a more sort of theoretical examination of this problem. Um, so again, because of my background uh, as an ethnographer, it made sense to uh, do this study ethnographically. And I, I really felt that, you know, there wasn't any other way. You cannot, you know, presume to know about a very specific situation of what I, a particular subculture is dealing with. So these youth I see as part of a particular subculture and without going and asking them for themselves. And I think also from the perspective of doing um, anti-colonial praxis as part of our uh, decolonizing of research methodologies, it is important to uh, not be imposing meanings on others, but, you know, being involved in a process where uh, Um, marginalized groups can be the um, dominant um, interlocutors of their own experience and where we can work collaboratively with them to co-construct meaning. So, I mean, ethnography has traditionally been taken up in very colonial ways from its own history, um, you know, in anthropology and colonialism and how that came together. So disentangling it from that um, dynamic um, involves, uh, you know, strategies uh, that are um, really looking at um, providing space for subaltern voices to to be heard and to be um, doing that in a way that, um, you know, allows their experiences and their narratives to guide the analysis and the theoretical work that we do. Mm 
Um, so that, you know, was why I wanted to do ethnography. And, um, and so it was important to, to be able to talk to youth um, across Canada, which is what I ended up doing. So uh, this was a national study with 130 um, participants that were predominantly youth, uh, but also youth workers and some religious leaders. So really, I went from, you know, New Brunswick to BC. So it was uh, New Brunswick, um, Ontario, um, Quebec and then um, British Columbia were basically uh, the sites of the research. And I did have research assistants in these locations as well, which was really important in terms of tapping into local networks where, um, you know, uh, you could have access. So I was able to then go and the, the um, uh, interviews were sort of set up by people locally because what's really important and at the time we were doing this research too, is gaining trust in communities that are marginalized because um, they have been securitized. And, uh, you know, speaking openly about these kinds of issues can be, um, you know, concerning and can be fraught for people when they don't really know what's that information going to be used for. Um, how am I going to be represented? All of these kinds of things. So it was good to have, um, you know, some, uh, Muslim research assistants who were known in the community and they had that sort of trust. Um, then I could go in and uh, we would do these interviews with uh, youth through focus groups and um, individual interviews. Um, and some participant observation in different youth forums as well. So really being a lot more embedded in um, some of the events that youth were involved in, as well as going to forums and doing interviews. So that was sort of the, 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 the scope of it was really, I think, a challenge. And again, some of the issues that came up for me around the securitization of research was around the ethical um, considerations like normally when we do um, you know ethnography we have an ethical review and we have you know a kind of a, a letter that we have for participants where we promise anonymity where we promise um, you know uh, that their identities are not revealed and that this material that we gather through interviews how is it going to be kept um, will it be locked up you know, how long do we keep the transcripts, all of these kinds of things. Um, but in a climate of securitization where you're talking to Muslim youth who simultaneously are being surveilled by security communities, I was never sure at what point would I be uh, approached by one of these security communities to say that, you know, well, there's a person of interest that we think you may have talked to and we want this, we want, you know, information. Now, I don't know uh, the legality of whether that would have happened, but it wasn't some, it was something that we had to consider. So in doing the research, we um, kept, we didn't digitize any of the um, forms that we had, you know, uh, we kept everything in paper, we immediately changed names. Uh, everyone's identified by a pseudonym anyway in the, in the report, but even in any digital files that I have, it's only the pseudonyms that are there, not people's real names. So we had to go the extra mile to really safeguard people's anonymity and privacy, you know, in the instance that it could somehow be opened up, opened up to uh, scrutiny 
from security communities. You know, while I was doing this research, um, I was approached by, you know, RCMP and others because they heard about, well, you're doing this study. Well, we want to know how do we win the hearts and minds of Muslim youth, this kind of thing, right? So um, it, it was, you know, concerning to me that at some point, um, some of that privacy, trust, security, safety could be breached. So that was something that was unique to this particular time and moment. Um, let's say, for example, it wasn't as much of a consideration when I was doing ethnography prior um, to 9-11 with Muslim youth. So that was another sort of challenge, I think, um, you know, to, to deal with. Yeah, I think so much of the anticipatory aspect of field work, especially with work that concerns security um, and, you know, young people, it's such a um, such a hard thing to take on. So mm -hmm. I think it's like so important that you're talking about it. And it's also kind of you articulate it and discuss it in the book as, uh, you know, the things we have to think about when we're doing ethnographic work that is of sensitive nature and you need to protect your interlocutors. Right. So I think that's great that um, you're able to kind of go there and take us into that um, the complexity of that work. Yeah. And it, it's not just, you know, it sounds like um, it could be something that is just, you know, being manufactured or overblown or we just have this paranoia, but it's not, um, you know, it isn't simply paranoia because even Muslims uh, student organizations are under surveillance mm -hmm. and, you know, they have had to deal with that. So it is something very palpable. It's something quite real. And it is a consideration also for the youth you're speaking to, because if they don't know you, they don't know if you know, you're a spy if you were someone sent, because right now we have, you know, security agencies that are knocking on the doors of Muslim Student Association uh, executives. They're going to their homes, they're going on campuses, they're going to their offices, they're surveilling them. Um, and we're quite aware of that and they're aware of that. So gaining trust as a researcher who wants to have these conversations about, you know, uh, securitization, Islamophobia, radicalization, all of these kinds of questions become uh, conversations that uh, within the climate we're in can be quite um, fraught and unsafe. And so uh, how do you provide, you know, that sense of safety, of anonymity, of, you know, um, trust under these circumstances? So that was something that um, was, uh, you know, an important consideration in doing the fieldwork. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the Canadian context? Because I know um, a lot of this is applicable to scholars who are working on, you know, Muslims in various diaspora contexts, be it Western Europe or the United States. But I also do think that there is something perhaps particular or um, different um, in the Canadian context. And I know this is a study about Canadian Muslim youth. So we have quite a bit of a, um, you know, global audience who listens in. So what would you perhaps want them to know about the Canadian context in which you're conducting this research or thinking about um, Muslims in, in Canada against the context of, you know, Islamophobia? Well, I think, you know, for a more global audience, I know that, you know, particularly when I go to conferences abroad, people are always very disappointed because the, that the Canadian multicultural, you know, kind of image is somehow being disrupted because they tend to see Canada as this example of this multicultural utopia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that somehow we've, we've 
you know, solve the problem here in terms of uh, uh, looking at, you know, diversity or whatever. And um, so when you do begin to talk about the fact that, look, Islamophobia is a homegrown phenomenon here. It's not something a lot of people, you know, thought it was something that came from south of the border and became imported here, particularly after um, Trump was elected, things like that. And so I've always really been talking about and do demonstrate in the book the context of Islamophobia in Canada as, you know, um, as a systemic issue, uh, as one that is referenced in the um, many polls in Canada, um, public opinion polls. I mean, there was one just recently, a few days ago, uh, looking at religion in in Canada and showing that you know Islam was one of the uh, among the religions that people find the least favorable in this country and that has been a fairly consistent um, finding in the last two decades um, and you know there were other kinds of um, public opinion polls that showed that you know there was a certain amount of a level of support for a Muslim ban in Canada, you know, after Trump's ban, there was, I think it was around 24, 27%, um, a, a lot of support for policies in Canada, which, um, you know, for example, are uh, rep representing systemic forms of uh, discrimination against Muslims like Bill 21 in Quebec, banning um, religious attire and in particular affecting Muslim women who wear hijab or niqab and barring them from public service um, positions. And that's the latest iteration of, uh, again, almost two decades of bills in that province to try and regulate, uh, you know, um, uh, women's attire, Muslim women's dress and religion within, um, within Quebec. And those tend to target um, specifically uh, Muslim populations, similar to the kinds of security policies that we've had and continue to have um, that, you know, from the Anti-Terrorism Act to the no-fly list to security certificates, um, you can point to the ways that Muslims have been particularly targeted in those kinds of securitized um, policies and laws that have been enacted in that sort of state of exception that opened up after 9-11. Um, so there are deep roots in Canada for anti-Muslim racism and Islamophobia um, to germinate. And we have seen the deadly consequences of Islamophobia in this country in uh, 2017, on January 29th, with the shooting in a Quebec City mosque that uh, killed um, six Muslim men after their evening prayers uh, at the hands of a white nationalist. And last year on January, sorry, June 6th, uh, 2021, where in London, Ontario, uh, a Pakistani Muslim family were uh, intentionally mowed down by a truck that was driven by a white uh, nationalist, um, you know, in another act of terror within four years against Muslims in this country. So Islamophobia is not something that can be, you know, um, disguised behind a smokescreen of multiculturalism. It is something that is actually, um, you know, part of uh, the fabric within our society, um, you know, and it carries on uh, a long legacy of different kinds of uh, racisms within this country, starting from, you know, white settler colonialism and racism that has um, and continues to affect uh, indigenous communities, black communities, and Muslims are uh, now among other immigrant groups that have 
served as these contemporary folk devils and um, are actually facing um, very unprecedented circumstances of securitization, of systemic um, discrimination that are specifically targeting um, uh, Muslims as an identifiable group. Um, and a lot of public opinion that is, um, you know, negatively um, evaluating Islam and Muslims in this country. Mm -hmm. So it isn't the pretty picture that everybody, you know, wants to have when it comes to uh, looking at Canada as a bastion of multiculturalism. Um, uh, but it is a reality that we have to um, address. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this also really raises kind of some of the questions you ask, um, I think in chapter two around identity and citizenship and a sense of belonging. So set against this context of Canada as not being, you know, as um, utopic as folks imagine it to be, um, recognizing that there are these um, structural and systemic issues, um, it really kind of sets the scene in terms of what the, the Muslim youth that you are speaking to are struggling with, particularly around belonging in a nation state that actively excludes them, right? How do you navigate it? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I know we've talked, you've mentioned this already, but I just wanted to make sure that we do kind of um, get to it clearly. So what do you mean by 9-11 um, generation or the group, the subculture of folks that you're talking about in this book? I think we should also just make sure that we clarify that as a, again, yeah. Yeah, so I'm talking about a generation, this is really the millennial generation of Muslim youth who were coming of age at a time uh, after the 9-11 um, uh, you know, uh, attacks and the aftermath of a heightened period of Islamophobia, where Islamophobia began to become mapped into the systems, laws, institutions within society, and where they were cast as, you know, as I say in one of the chapters, as sort of the boogeyman and as uh, became the focus of um, security agencies who were talking about Muslim youth as the greatest threat to, um, you know, uh, around the globe, not just in Canada. And so they very much became uh, the focus of a particular attention and concern as potential radicals and jihadists and so on. And I was looking at this generation uh, in particular because they were dealing with the brunt of this heightened uh, form of Islamophobia post 9-11. I mean, Islamophobia has long history and genealogy. There's various iterations and there's always something specific about those moments. And I think there's something specific about the 9-11 uh, moment and what it ushered in for Muslim communities globally. Uh, and I really wanted to look at what Muslim youth who were coming of age at that time. So the youth I interviewed were, <clears throat> excuse me, didn't know much of a world before 9-11. Mm -hmm. And they were very much socialized into the conditions um, of, of this sort of heightened Islamophobia in ways that they weren't always necessarily cognizant of. So, for example, I would ask them questions like, you know, what are your student groups doing right now? And, um, well, no, first I would ask them, actually, what was the impact of 9-11 on you? Like, how did it impact you? And they would uh, often come back with, well, no, it didn't have any impact on me. And then I would ask them, okay, well, so what are you up to? What are your student groups doing? And they would say, well, you know, we were thinking of going up north to play paintball, but we didn't want to do that because we didn't want to be seen as a terrorist cell, you know? Oh, okay, but then 9-11 didn't affect us. 
you know, and I found this even, you know, when my son was uh, president of the MSA at his university and they were planning to go and go to, you know, to the woods at the Rouge here and, uh, you know, have a bonfire. And I remember thinking, okay, wow, like that could really attract a lot of unwanted attention. And, you know, they, they also started to, to, to be concerned that, yeah, can we actually go and do that as a group? you know, um, will people be suspicious of us, right? So there was this sense of how um, they were internalizing, you know, the kind of um, sort of panoptic gaze that they were under and how that was an internalized form of Islamophobia where they began to become self-surveilling and start to see themselves as suspect Mm -hmm. and that that would impact the choices and decisions that, you know, that they made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were very distinct ways in which Islamophobia was affecting um, the youth of this generation. And that's not to say that it doesn't affect, you know, Generation Z right now, but in different ways, too, because, um, you know, they've also seen the millennial youth grow up with specific kinds of challenges as well. And I think that, um, you know, that gives them I think every generation has its own um, particular kinds of challenges, depending on the moment, the historical, political, cultural moments that have shaped their development. And so I think that um, looking at the 9-11 generation of Muslim youth um, allows us to see how that sort of moment um, affected them, uh, you know, in in different ways, including, as you mentioned, their sense of identity, citizenship, um, belonging. Mm Um, And one of the things that I found really useful, and I think this is like the scholarship on this is constantly kind of evolving and there's so much conversation around this, but your kind of framework and setting up of Islamophobia and also um, talking about anti-Muslim racism um, was really helpful in the earlier chapters. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about like how, you know, what is Islamophobia and how is it different from perhaps saying anti-Muslim racism, which has emerged more recently as a a framework to utilize and having some of these discussions. Yeah, I I, I think for me, you know, the way that I define Islamophobia um, is very much specific to my use of it as a sociologist. And so for me, I look at Islamophobia through its sociological dimensions or dynamics. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different uh, debates on how to define Islamophobia. Um, and there is also scholars who are now preferring to use the term anti-Muslim racism. Uh, for me, I see Islamophobia as the overarching framework and anti-Muslim uh, racism as a manifestation mm-hmm. of Islamophobia, because you really cannot, you know, uh, take out Uh, Islam from Islamophobia, because when you look at so much of the narratives and rhetoric and um, campaigns of Islamophobia are very much attached to demonizing and vilifying Islam as well. And then, you know, what is distinct about Muslims? We're a billion and a half people around the world from different ethno-racial backgrounds, from different, you know, um, uh, nationalities and so on. And so there's nothing uh, that is specific. It's not one race, for example. But of course, Muslims and Islam become racialized. And so for me, the bridge is sort of the racialization of religion. Um, But for me, the overarching definition of Islamophobia is one that looks at it as a um, form of oppression that's expressed individually, ideologically, and systemically. 
And I use that uh, throughout the book as a framework. So for example, if we were to imagine it as an iceberg, if you look at the tip of the iceberg, what you would see when you uh, were going to look at Islamophobic actions, for example, individual actions, you would have anything from microaggressions to hate crimes, vandalism at mosques, you know, all sorts of um, uh, acts like that, that you would see as sort of individual acts. Um, but below the waterline, uh, what's holding up the iceberg are, and what's invisible often, are the ideologies that support those actions, right? Ideas that Muslims are, are terrorists and Muslim women are oppressed and backward, and there is this triumphalist Islamic agenda to, for a global takeover, all of these conspiracy theories and such. And you see that, as I mentioned, very much referenced in negative public opinion polls in this country. So you have those ideas, those ideologies that are supporting and rationalizing and justifying those particular kinds of actions and are also feeding into the other part of what you don't see under um, the water, and those are the systemic practices. So the you know, policies and practices of the state and within institutions where um, Muslims are you know, facing discrimination, that can be anything from you know, government bills, policies to practices within uh, education, social services, healthcare, and also in private um, sector as well, where there's a lot of employment discrimination um, that happens particularly uh, you know, for Muslim women who are um, marked more visibly for example, or people with Muslim sounding names having to change them when, you know, they whiten their CV, things like that. So we've got that. So to me, it's very important to understand, you know, how that dynamic happens through both individual actions, ideologies, and systems through which it becomes uh, reproduced, right? That's how um, Islamophobia is reproduced. And so those, in, those manifestations of Islamophobia and how it's enacted on Muslim bodies, I see as a form of anti-Muslim racism. But even when we talk about anti-Muslim racism, there's a tapestry of intersecting racisms because there's within that, there's anti-Arab racism, there's anti-Brown racism, there's anti-Black racism, and those are all providing different um, um, historical trajectories and different um, uh, registers through which Islamophobia becomes lived and experienced. Mm. I think that's super helpful to, to think about in terms of the relationship between the two, because I know sometimes it's um, some literature tends to conflate it. And so it's mm -hmm. often like important, I think, to nuance it like you have. And, and I think it really, I think importantly gets at the different experiences of, you know, um, different Muslims, um, particularly black Muslims and um, uh, racialized Muslims that are located in various um, as, you know, um, nexus of oppressions. Mm -hmm. um, so there's so many, so much aspects of the, of the book that, you know, we won't be able to get into, but one of the ones I did want to talk to you about was um, the Muslim student associations on campus. I, I just found that chapter really fascinating, um, you know, sad and heartbreaking also, but in terms of the experiences, and I think a lot of our, our listeners may be professors or have relationships with the space of, you know, post-secondary education. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about um, what you did find in the, in, in, connecting with um, Muslim student associations in terms of their experiences and how they're navigating either implicit or explicit Islamophobia as they see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I've been looking 
looking at Muslim youth subcultures through Muslim student associations, even prior to this study, in fact, my MA research, you know, looked at Muslim student subcultures in high schools. Um, and I kind of began looking at that. And I realized that, you know, even some of the foundations of that work I had done previously about understanding MSAs as a subculture on campus was still valid in this particular study, you know, some 20 years later. Um, and so I do look at MSAs as part of this sort of, uh, you know, Muslim subculture on campus. And what I began to also theoretically articulate as a counter public space. Um, and so looking now at MSAs after, you know, uh, some distance from earlier research and having the background myself as being part of a, an MSA um, in my own experience, um, my son was in MSAs since high school as well. So, um, you know, it, they are a very interesting kind of um, organization and association because they're never static, which is one thing. Um, there's always a turnover. You know, every four years, the culture can shift dramatically. So even in the MSA that uh, was at my university when I started, uh, you know, 17 years ago, was actually a very conservative group that was Hizbut Tahrir was an HT group and they actually um, didn't like any of the Muslim professors uh, on campus because we weren't the right kind of Muslim and they were very insular. Um, they were not interested in dealing with things like Islamophobia or anything. They just wanted to police other Muslims on campus. And so for the first few years, it was a very um, closed group. Uh, and then, you know, when those uh, members kind of graduated and moved on a new group came in that brought a completely different framework one that was very kind of open and dynamic and they did you know wonderful things and so seeing the you know the kind of um, uh, shifting nature of these groups uh, was interesting to see in different contexts and how they were organized and you know there's always some positive elements of what these groups can do for youth on campus in terms of providing spaces of support and camaraderie spaces of activism but they can also be places of intense religious chauvinism mm -hmm. and bigotry um, and, you know, they can be places where, um, you know, women can be marginalized, there can be um, places where uh, LGBTQ Muslims are not going to be accepted. Um, and so they have the capacity to both be uh, spaces for, um, you know, uh, for uh, something progressive and positive, but also spaces that can be very narrow containers for a form of identity and very rigid uh, closed groups that can be very chauvinistic as well. And so that really, you know, varies according to the different groups that come in and sometimes try and co-opt these um, associations for other kinds of, um, you know, political purposes and ends. Um, but there's also a lot of good that come out um, from some of these groups. They're doing a lot of positive things in terms of activism, in terms of creating awareness on campus. Um, and so it's kind of a mixed, you know, uh, bag in that regard. Uh, and throughout, I mean, you know, I remember 30 years ago in my MSA, we were doing an Islamic Awareness Week because back then, too, we had to be the corrective, you know, to the dominant negative um, representation of Islam. And that's something I found very much throughout my study that Muslim youth were, you know, looking at themselves as having to be this image corrective 
for Islam as sort of having to set the record straight and bearing this burden of collective guilt and responsibility for, you know, 9-11 and every other kind of problem that Muslims somewhere in the world are seen as being um, responsible for, that they have to carry that burden and respond to it. And so, you know, the MSAs kind of also uh, you know, play that good Muslim, bad Muslim uh, game where they really are trying to show uh, the rest of the campus community that, you know, we are good Muslims, we are uh, not going to blow anything up, <laughs> you know, we're here doing, uh, we have bowling night, you know, we have charitable events, we do this sort of thing. And so there is that sense where um, collectively these associations have had to address the collective labeling and have had to to sort of serve as that you know corrective um, and they've also had they've also you know been involved in a lot of campus-based activism around global issues and concerns <clears throat> and there's always you know something that comes up where whether it's Palestine, whether it's, you know, in the past it was Bosnia, now, you know, Syria. And so, you know, there's um, always those kinds of, um, you know, political, just as in my MSA, we were looking at Afghanistan and the Russian occupation. There's always been, you know, so many political concerns that MSAs are either fundraising for, trying to raise awareness. So they they have to fill, fulfill that role as well. Um, of um, a place for that kind of activism, um, you know, on campus. Mm -hmm. So there, there's many different roles that they that they fulfill. Right. Um, and I also wanted to pick up on uh, something that you mentioned earlier, which is kind of the the sixth topic of the sixth chapter, um, which is the idea of the the you know the Muslim being cast as a boogeyman, which I you know, a lot of the, the youth that you engaged with were responding to not only in terms of organizing, but like how to, to be in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, and responding constantly to this idea of being radicals or radicalized. Mm -hmm. um, so this chapter was also really interesting because you spoke to a lot of different folks. Um, and so I wonder if you wanted to highlight some points um, from this chapter as well that you've mentioned already, but um, maybe we could talk about it a little bit more explicitly, which is the setting set against the trope of the, the radical, you know, the jihadi type um boogeyman yeah right well you know there's two chapters one that looks at the security industrial complex and the surveillance of, of muslims and then the chapter following it looks at you know the issue of radicalization and how muslim youth are responding to that particular labeling so there's you know again a lot that's been said and written about and scholars have looked at this phenomenon of radicalization and particularly in the context of youth but never really asked Muslim youth about, well, how do you see this phenomenon and how are you affected by it, right? It isn't simply, you know, something that is an academic study. It is something that is very much a part of how their identities are being viewed by others and therefore, you know, how do they take on board uh, that external labeling and how do they respond and challenge it? And what are their thoughts about, you know, some of the misguided youth who do um, follow more destructive paths when the majority are not, but nonetheless have to contend with that labeling. Um, and so, uh, you know, that uh, chapter and that process of asking youth questions about that, I think allowed them to have conversations that, you know, they wanted to have, but never had the opportunity to have, because even the conversation around radicalization didn't happen within the Muslim community, right? There was never a space to come together to talk about, okay, you know, what's happening? Are there concerns about youth? Because 
very early on that conversation was co-opted by security communities. And, you know, Muslim groups felt like, well, if we're going to talk about this, well, we should probably have thesis in the RCMP and people come and be part of this conversation. So they, they see we're trying to address this issue. Mm-hmm. And so there was never a space for Muslim youth to be able to talk about how they were feeling uh, about being labeled in this way, what it meant for them and how they were, um, you know, sort of challenging that in um, what they, you know, what they do and responding to it. So it was really, I think, important to have those uh, conversations and, you know, um, a very small number of youth get caught up in um, these reactionary kinds of movements, but all of them have to deal with that that label. And um, I I was also able to talk with um, someone who had been a former you know, sort of radical and was now part of this whole de-radicalization industry that, you know, people who claim to have been involved with um, formerly being radicalized and are now have seen the light and they're, you know, uh, helping others and they come up with sort of ideas about how to do a theological detox and things like this. Um, you know, and I was talking to to someone who had been through that experience and was now playing that role, particularly with the group of youth that were, uh, you know, dubbed the Toronto 18, mm-hmm. who had been arrested on, on terror charges. And, um, uh, and in that, trying to sort of look at, you know, what are what are some of the motivators and drivers of radicalization and, um, uh, you know, why do some, you know, end up this way, uh, following that destructive path and not others, because essentially, you know, security communities look for a profile and want to find certain markers that will determine whether someone is going to become radical and radicalized. And so much of CVE or countering violent extremism policies and practices globally rely on creating that particular archetype. And the problem is that there is no such you know, um, profile to be created because it is very much a kind of perfect storm of various factors that come into play in an individual's uh, life that can lead them on that sort of destructive journey. Um, And so I think that was one of the things that was important to uh, emphasize that as much, and, and a lot of the literature thankfully, too, is saying the same thing. You know, the academic literature and studies on radicalization are showing that, you know, number one, religion isn't necessarily a driver of any of this. It's much more political. Um, And that the youth uh, who get involved are are doing so out of a number of different um, uh, types of issues, whether it's certain forms of, uh, you know, aggrievement, idea, you know, wanting adventure, looking for a purpose, you know, everything to, uh, you know, ideas of grand delusions of grandeur, there were a number of different um, uh, factors that lead into that. And the youth I talked to tried to make sense of why other youth might want to go down that path. And, you know, they really did see it as a response and reaction to global oppression of Muslims as you know, getting pushed to a point where you feel like you need to do something. Um, and for a majority of Muslim youth, their response is not one of violence or going abroad to fight, but of really, uh, you know, looking at resistance in, in different ways, whether it is through other forms of activism, 
Um, in chapter seven, I look at the arts as a form of resistance and how Muslim youth are using that medium to, to uh, address the issues that they have faced as the 9-11 generation and also to think about and envision, you know, alternative futures, right? So I think um, for me, it was important to, you know, look at those issues of securitization, how that becomes internalized, how youth become self-surveilling, how they feel about the radical label, but then also to look at how do they resist this? Otherwise we end up with very victim-centered tropes about Muslim communities, right? And I always like to examine, you know, resistance and look at the different forms that that takes because it doesn't need to be, you know, going off and joining some sort of reactionary movement, but it can uh, more often be better facilitated through counter storytelling and creating other alternative narratives. And that's what I found. Um, and that's what interested me in a lot of what um, this generation of youth were, were trying to do. Yeah. And I think um, to that point, chapter seven was probably my favorite chapter of the book. And um, partly because I think um, the um, anti-colonial work, but also uh, uh, as you had framed it, is, you know, the, the creative producers, the cultural producers who are doing this work that is trying to parallel or trying to, you know, sway attention in other spaces is, is so important. And it was um, wonderful, I think, to end off on that note, but also to highlight that work, because I, I don't think, you know, the artists don't get the sensationalism that perhaps that, you know, the terrorist trope gets, right? But it's the, it's the artists and the cultural producers who are doing the real work and it was really wonderful to to hear some of their um their voices on why they're doing it and how they're doing it I thought that was quite powerful yeah thank you I I, I was really moved by that as well and and you know if you ask me and people often do you know wh where do you see hope in all of this and I would say that it resides more in that space mm. of um resistance through cultural production and the arts because it's a very generative space to um, rethink and reimagine um, uh, alternative futures but also to be able to allow um, marginalized subaltern communities to tell their own stories right and and um, and to do it in a way that represents their experience and but you're right like it's so undervalued um, both in a dominant sense but even within our communities where there isn't enough emphasis placed on supporting the role of the artists and the cultural producers um, you know the writers the journalists the poets the artists all of that I think is so important but doesn't get enough um, attention both within the community and outside of it. Yeah, and I think it's something that we could easily support, which is like give platform and whatever mediums that we um, are socially engaged in, right? It's not like a difficult thing to do. But I, one of the great quotes I, I remember from reading that chapter is um, one of the artists, I think maybe she was a Palestinian Canadian artist, um, mm -hmm. who says, you know, if you, if you have the mic and you've said your thing, instead of dropping it, why don't you just give it to me so I could do, you say my thing. Like, it's like about sharing and like, providing more space for voices as opposed to just giving platform to this one particular perhaps you know um, journalistic approach to these topics but like let's get more voices in these spaces and let's start talking and they exist already it's just a matter of making sure that we highlight them and amplify them right and I thought that was really important yeah yeah I I, I remember that quote and uh, I thought it was really powerful as well you know because 
uh, you know, the issue isn't just okay, like there's this terrorist trope out there. I mean, it, you know, I, and one of the, the um, participants also said like, you know, I, I mean, I get that sometimes that's a, a, you know, an artistic choice, let's say in a film that you have some, something represent, but that should be other representations. If it's the only representation, then that's a problem. And of course, you know, historically um, the representation of Muslims has been, you know, in these very limited kinds of, um, uh, stereotypes. And so breaking outside of that and, uh, you know, creating new archetypes and new, um, you know, storytellers that can relate different experiences of Muslims are really, really important. And, you know, we see that this year, the Academy Awards with Riz Ahmed winning for The Long Goodbye. I mean, that's a really powerful short piece that is quite chilling and really addresses contemporary, you know, dystopic forms of Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something I show in my class. And I think the students find that to be one of the most impactful things that they see. And so um, this is, you know, the kind of cultural production that moves people outside of their minds and into, you know, relating to issues in a more visceral way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's really needed because it's so hard to get people to care about Islamophobia. Um, compared to other things, uh, you know, and Islamophobia is a global scourge. It's, you know, whether we we're talking about Canada now, but we can look at not just the United States, Europe, but, you know, in, in India, Burma, China, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, all over the world, we will find these, um, you know, everything from genocide, ethnic cleansing, uh, you know, state repression. Uh, so. But yet we don't have any real social movements around this. We don't have, you know, um, the same kind of attention being drawn to it. So I think that, you know, the kind of vehicle of the arts allows people to um, have a different, you know, connection to Islamophobia, its impact and um, the communities that are impacted by it in ways that don't seem to be uh, working when it's simply through, you know, media consumption or other kinds of knowledge. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Absolutely. Um, and so I think it was perfect that that was the, the final substantive chapter of the book as well. Um, I know there's so many pieces of the, the book uh, that we didn't get to just because of time, but I wonder as we're concluding, if there's perhaps some points that um, you really wanted to make sure that got across that, we, that didn't come up in our conversation. Oh, well, thanks for that opportunity. I, I think we, we covered, you know, quite a bit of the book is very, um, ambitious that covers a lot of ground which I felt you know was necessary to really tell this story of this generation and the different you know uh, facets of their experience right from the questions of identity and looking at those sort of affective registers of Islamophobia in terms of how it's impacting youth and their identity. You know, there's ways that for some youth, they became more invested in their identity as Muslims because now all of a sudden they were kind of under siege in this way. So, and, and, and they may not have been identifying with their identity prior. But once it became sort of more widely um, <clears throat> challenged and critiqued and maligned, they felt some solidarity and engaging in that identity. Uh, and for others, it became, uh, you know, a devalued, a socially devalued identity that they wanted to distance from. 
So they became estranged and they would, you know, change their names or not identify and they were fearful. And um, so there were, you know, those kinds of dynamics that were um, affecting how youth were uh, attaching or disengaging from their identities, you know, as Muslims, as well as that good Muslim, bad Muslim type of um, game that, you know, uh, they were forced to have to uh, um, be the image corrective and try and show that, you know, Muslims are good people, all of that sort of thing um, that was going on. And, you know, all the way through the securitization, through the radicalization tropes, and then looking at resistance and then honing in on, you know, the campus culture in an age of empire and what that meant, um, you know, for Muslim youth in uh, Muslim student associations, which were sort of the largest kind of group for that particular, you know, demographic where um, they would come together, you know, and um, be involved collectively and collaboratively uh, as Muslims, but also looking how at how those spaces were fraught in a number of, of ways. So it really was a um, kind of ambitious uh, undertaking, but hopefully um, offered, you know, some theoretical insights um, into the sociological study of uh, Islamophobia and of Muslims uh, and Muslim youth, uh, as well as providing some of that, um, you know, rich ethnographic data that allows us to hear the voices of um, uh, youth themselves and uh, kind of, you know, breaking through the subaltern silence and uh, coming into representation and being able to narrate um, their own experiences. And that's been, I think, one of the things that's been very heartening for me is to, uh, as people are, are reading um, the book and I'm hearing about how you know, it's validating um, their experiences, you know, um, that it's something that they could see themselves reflected in and never saw that before. Mm -hmm. uh, and so really, you know, always uh, having those experiences of, you know, when you are marginalized and subalternized and, and um, seeing that finally reflected in a way that, you know, resonates and that um, is validating, you know, uh, makes you feel less uh, like you're being gaslighted all the time in terms of like, you know, is this really happening to me? Uh, should I be concerned about this? And so that's been a very heartening experience um, for me and some of the responses that I've been getting. Oh, that's fantastic to hear because I think that's so much. I've, I think we talk about representation so much and people think that it's like futile or like, you know, cosmetic or superficial. But I think one of the things we don't often talk about is that so much of that is also just actual validation of your experiences, which puts, as you said, things into perspective and which really helps your sense of self and belonging. Because otherwise you're just kind of thinking, oh, maybe I'm losing it or, you know, yeah. psychologically it's really distressful, which a lot of your participants mentioned, right? And so that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, so before we let you go, I, I mean, you know, congratulations on this book and hopefully you're resting and recovering. Um, but I wonder if there are things down the line that you'll like, if there's other things you're working on that we could anticipate in the future or maybe projects that are just in, in its genesis and catalyzing at the moment. Um, we would love to hear what's what's coming down the pipeline. 
Well, thank you so much. And actually, I do have something very important in the pipeline that hopefully will be uh, coming out quite soon. And, and that is, you know, um, a four-year study that I've been working on on Canada's Islamophobia industry. And uh, I have a report that is a book-length report, uh, which I hope to launch in June. Uh, to coincide with the first year anniversary of the London, Ontario terror attack. So somewhere in and around um, that time. Um, and what this report is looking at are the various sort of networks and players that comprise a, an industry of Islamophobia. And so what's significant about Islamophobia and what's distinct about it versus other kinds of oppressions and racisms is that there's an, a, an industry behind its promotion, one that works 24 seven and which is um, highly funded. Uh, there have been research in the United States on the Islamophobia industry um, and there has never been a study on, in Canada to uh, map that industry and see what it looks like, who are the different players um, and what are the ways that they are promoting uh, Islamophobia acting uh, collectively and um, you know, orchestrating controversies and so on. And so uh, I'm you know, very excited about this report that's coming out. Um, it's uh, very detailed. It's a hybrid between you know, an academic um, study, but also investigative work where you know, I had a team of graduate students who also um, were helping to look at these networks and, and the connections between them. So you know, looking at media outlets uh, like rebel media, looking at what we call Islamophobia influencers, you know, specific people like Faith Goldie or Lauren Southern to looking at white nationalist groups um, that are um, uh, particularly Islamophobic in their mandates uh, to Muslim dissident groups that are also part of this network, um, think tanks and soft power groups that we refer to as, uh, you know, some of groups that are pro-Israel and, and um, Zionist um, Jewish and Christian groups that also participate in promoting um, Islamophobia. And so how they're all connected. And it's a, a very um, interesting and troubling mapping of um, the various um, players and their connections. So um, that is something that uh, is in the pipeline and uh, hope to launch in the next couple of months. And I guess the other thing I'll just mention briefly is the development of the International Islamophobia Studies Research Association, or ISRA, of which I'm a co-founder, along with um, Hatem Bazian um, from Berkeley and Salman Sayed from University of Leeds. And we started this association uh, about a year ago, and we are hoping to have our inaugural conference in, uh, it looks like it's going to be in Istanbul in um, July, and that will be the launch of the association. Um, and so we are a global association of um, Islamophobia studies. Uh, we do have two journals attached to us, which is the Islamophobia uh, Studies Journal, as well as Reorient. And we've got a international advisory board. So that's another exciting development um, over the last little while. 
Oh, that's, I mean, you're very busy and <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, I hope there's also lots of like gardening and stuff in there because I know you love to garden. So <laughs> there absolutely is. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Because I'm like, I think there needs to be some flowers in that too. <laughs> cool. Um, well, yeah, I was looking at, at adding the peace rose to my garden, I think, uh, because that's something that will be quite poetic and needed at this moment. Yeah, no, no, no. I think I mean you're doing such important work, but it's also really heavy work. And so I've often am mindful when I read such scholarship of uh, what you have to carry in order to do this. So I'm glad to know that gardening is also part of your life. So yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I'm so grateful that you were able to spend some time with us and to share about your new project. And I wish you all the best for your future endeavors. Um, and hopefully we'll connect again soon. I'd love that. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, most welcome. Okay. And that was my conversation with Dr. Yasmin Zin about her new book, Under Siege, Islamophobia and the 9-11 Generation. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and I hope you'll also join us again next time. Until then, stay well and take good care.